I grew up at a small uh, city church here in Cincinnati, and even though we were like this urban church, and sometimes you think that those churches are just more uh, progressive, understanding, this was like a, a more a very conservative congregation, and my parents kind of leaned into that because you know, my concepts of God, even though, you know, at least I saw my family live them out well, my concepts were sometimes confined. And I remember one day as a youth, there was a, another kid in the church from a family that wasn't quite as Christian as we were. And we were playing in the church and we're running down a hallway. And out of nowhere, I remember my arm just being grabbed. And I looked up and it's my dad. And I'm like, oh crap. And he grabs the other kid too, and he pulls us out to a, a side room, and he's holding on to me tightly, and he's like making eye contact with the kid. And he's like, we don't run in the church. He said, do you know what I would do to you if you were my kid? And he proceeds to bend me over his knee and whap the living stuffing out of my hiney. He's like, that's what I would do with you. You never run with the church. And I thought it was crazy that my father was teaching a lesson to this other young man, yet I was receiving all the retribution of it. Stories. Here's the thing. Um, this is a picture of the church where I grew up worshiping at. Um, it was next to a beautiful old uh, church building. Actually, it was just about this. Uh, it was a, newer than this building, believe it or not. And they built this annex building, and currently it's on Price Avenue in uh, Price Hill, and it looks like a bank now. It's not a bank. First Financial just sponsored the renovations of it, but basically it was like a brick cinder block building. It wasn't like it was like running around and jumping on the pews here. You know what I mean? Like it was pretty crazy that my father got so excited about running into church. Maybe it was just because there wasn't a lot of place to run into it, but I, I, let me shift to the side here, and I promise I'll bring this back to it, but I want you to think about now, like, this might be a seismic shift, but I want you to think about cities in general. When I say the words to you, St. Louis, what do you think of immediately? I, I love that the first thing that Ryan said was Nellie. Usually, we think of the arch. When I say Paris, your thought is immediately to the Eiffel Tower. This is working swimmingly. When I said Sydney, there you go. <laughs> One more time, P. Sherman, 42, Wallaby Lane. That was awesome. Yeah, that was great. The Opera House. And when I say Seattle, you might think of the Space Needle. Okay, so it's interesting that there is this association that we have that cities equal structures and similarly that churches equal buildings. But if you're a good student of the Bible, you recognize that a church really isn't the building at all, that the church are the people that inhabit it. And what we have done is we've created this, this belief system that somehow the buildings are significant, when over and over in the Bible, what we see is a lack of significance in the buildings. So really, if I had been smart, as my father started to lecture me and the other young man about running in the church, I would be like, well, Father, there's no way that we can do that because the church is a collection of souls, of, of followers of Jesus. And unless I'm Dennis Quaid in the movie Inner Space, it's impossible for me to enter into somebody else. So therefore, I have not broken any violation. How about that 1980s movie reference drop? If you, Netflix, Inner Space, you need to watch this movie. Martin Short's in it as well. Okay, so 
we are blessed to meet in this building, which I was laughing about this because I'm like, I put a picture of the building, you know, while we are sitting into it, just to illustrate that we are sitting in the building. This is what I look at. Actually, this is how I pretend that none of you are here when I am looking out at it, okay? We are, we are blessed to meet in this building, but the reality is, is that this building is not the church. There have been three, at least three, maybe four different churches, ourselves included, that have met within this space but what we recognize, and I had a meeting with the owners of the building this week, this, the Cincinnati Early Learning Center, as we're talking about it, we talk about it as this facility, not necessarily as this holy place, even though it's adorned with stained glass and there's a cross in the building, really the church is who we are inside of it. This is maybe evidence best right in this area, down the street here, if you head down Taft toward where it turns into Calhoun. There's a beautiful old church building that, you, you know, you can see from the outside. And as many of us probably realize, is that building right now is currently an American, an urban outfitters, right? So you can go in there and buy expensive jeans, even, I believe, on a Sunday. I don't know if they're closed on Sunday. Sunday. Somebody's got to investigate that for me. Because what we see here is this concept that what maybe at one point was perceived as sacred space now is just a building for housing people or stuff or wares. So we have to ask ourselves, and this is going to be the question that we're going to grapple with this morning. What's so sacred about space? World religions tend to have high value for their spaces. And maybe you've seen the pictures of the Kaaba in Mecca. And what's very interesting about this is that, you know, and I've, I think a lot of us have seen pictures, but I believe it was a New York Times uh, portfolio photography view. You need to see what they've done around this because they have now erected like huge, massive hotels surrounding this place so that the, you know, the wealthiest Muslims in the world can come and have amazing, like you can view down at this from like 60, 70 stories in the air. But at the same time, that space, it's a pilgrimage site for Muslims where they believe that something incredibly sacred happened there and therefore they venerate it. Similarly, within Hinduism, here in, uh, in excuse me, I said Hinduism because it's in India. Within Buddhism, the Bodh Gaya here is one of uh, the most impressive statues of Buddha and this is seen as a sacred space. And maybe you are familiar with for Jews, one of the most sacred places in all the world is the Western Wall. And this is actually a picture that Steve took 10 years ago when we were at the Western Wall, which I was like, wait for Hasidic Jews to walk by. Snap, got it. Here's the interesting thing about this place, though, and really getting to this idea is that understand that, and I don't know if you know this because everybody's like, well, the Western Wall was a temple. Actually, it wasn't even the temple. It was a retaining wall that King Herod, who was from, you know, the story of Jesus, he tried to kill all the babies. Well, he did kill babies in Bethlehem, tried to kill Jesus. Herod built this big structure upon which the temple even sat. And the only remaining thing is this wall that dates 2,000 years ago. And it's about the closest that Jews can get to this sacred space. Actually, we went up when we were there toward the Muslim structure, the Dome of the Rock on top, and there's a sign written in all these different languages, including Hebrew and English, that says Jews are not permitted here because the space is so holy you could die. Because they believe that real estate of the Holy of Holies is so sacred that it will strike you down. Where do they get this? They get this from the Bible. 
And we're in the midst of our study of the books of First and Second Kings. We've called this series Game of Thrones because we're going to see how horribly crazy the monarchy is in the Old Testament, the people who were chosen to run the people of Israel. Um, and, and in this book, we're, we're going to be in chapter uh, 6 today, but what we've missed when we're looking at the, the line of kings that God picked, the first one was Saul. We haven't talked about Saul because he doesn't appear in this book at all, but he was the first one, and Saul was a miserable, abject failure. He looked very kingly, but he couldn't act that way. So therefore, God rose up this guy named David. We know David's a historical figure, not just a biblical figure. There is actual archaeological proof that a man named David lived. This is one of the reasons why we trust in the scriptures, because we see that it matches up. And you have David here, who we read about in chapters 1 and some of chapter 2, who was this king that was supposed to be amazing, but again, what we saw is David was amazingly screwed up. And he was very good at it. And then last week we talked about Solomon, known for his wisdom. But we saw that Solomon, even though he was wise, could not live wisely with his life. Bunch of continual failures. The reason that we're talking about Solomon today is because the thing for which he's known more, most for, even throughout world history, is that he was the builder of the first temple for the people of God. I want to talk about it within these terms right here. Because within the Bible we see triads, you know, three things together. There's a power in three, right? And if you know Christian theology, we believe that God is three in one. We believe that he's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's, there's triads continually. And within the identity of who Israel was, there's an important triad that exists within the Old Testament. And one is that there is a king. There's somebody that, you know, the people asked for a king. God delivered them a king for better or for worse. And that is an aspect of who they are as a people. Similarly, the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not just like this city started by the people of Israel. Actually, it was started by people named the Jebusites. That's why there's a Je. So um, actually, it was called Jebus. So if you're a Simpsons fan that comes through, that's becoming even more dated. You need to find that episode two. I'm giving you just Netflix cues right now. But the third aspect of the identity of the people of God within the Old Testament is the temple. And like we said, Solomon's the one who built it. But what was interesting, it wasn't that Solomon came up with this idea on his own. Actually, the idea for a temple came from his dad, David. David wanted to build a temple. But what we see God doing through David was even though he allowed David to have some successes, he said, nope, you're not going to be my guy. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, that's another book that chronicles the kings of the Old Testament. It says, David rose to his feet and said, listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people. I had it in my heart to build a house. As a place to rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It was this box, this sacred box that they carried around. For the footstool of our God. And I made plans to build it, but God said to me, You're not to build a house for my name because you are a warrior and have shed blood. What God was saying is that, look, you are a killer, David. Like, you are a soldier. You have killed people and therefore I don't want that blood on this building so you're not going to be the guy. So what's interesting is that David actually helped in some ways to set Solomon up to build the temple. So 
What we're going to look at is how this got built. And we're going to go through chapter 6, a little 7, 8 today of First Kings. We're not going to go through all this. I'm not going to have somebody read. I, there, there's just a lot there. I would encourage you to go through, read this if you have some, you know, interest in architecture. I don't know. Maybe it'll help you out. First Kings chapter 6, verse 1. In your blue Bibles, it's page what? Anyone? 240? Verse 1. In the 480th year, after the Israelites came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, it's a good month, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. So Solomon was the one who built it. By the way, this 480th year since they came out of Egypt, we think they came out of Egypt right about 1446. We've been able to date that archaeologically. So you do the math, we're talking about the early, like it's in that first millennia before Jesus was born. In Israelite history, what's interesting is the 480th year is right about the midpoint of their history. And what we really think that Kings is, is a collection of old biblical histories that they put together. So some people are like, either this is just an illustrative or this is just happenstance, that the temple is built right in the middle of the history of the people of God. The symbolism runs deep because what the temple is going to be for these people, what the house of God here in Jerusalem, it's all about access. Two different types of access. By the way, computer graphic rendering of the table of the temple doesn't exist today because it's gone and actually it was rebuilt three times and that one doesn't even exist so far be it from me up wow we flipped right through that didn't we having some remote issues temples about access the first thing is theological access how do you communicate with your god understand for people living in the ancient near east they did not usually have direct communication with their gods And you're like, whoa, 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 Steve, I read the Bible, and God's always talking to people. Yeah, he talks to people, but really, the sum of people he talks through throughout the history, from the book of Genesis to about the time of Solomon, is really in the 20s, maybe? And there's quite a few more people than that. So as much as you might be like, you know, in the ancient world, I would have been that person that God would have come to talk to and say, hark, Steve, let me instruct you. No, chances are, I would have been like the schleb dude in the field who would have like lived 35 years and died of like cholera, whatever disease that lived back then. I didn't, I I would have been one of those people that wouldn't have had access to God. And therefore, the importance of the temple is going to be, it's going to be a location by which people can have theological access to where they can actually have relationship with God because they will go to a place. And this is why when you read through the Bible and the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers Deuteronomy, when it talks about all the sacrificial system, you might be like, it's just about killing animals and that's a horrible thing. For them in the ancient world, it was the only way that they could have relationship with God. So for them, this was a very, very good thing. And God, as he allowed this access, I have slides everywhere. That's what I wanted to say earlier. I was cheating to it. He spoke through individuals. There was this mention of this ark, this holy box that held a bunch of sacred artifacts. You know, that, it was God trying to get closer. And then before there was a, a pre-tent temple. It was a tabernacle. This temple is going to be the culmination of God just getting closer to his people for, for people who lived in the ancient world. It was going to be a good thing. And then the second thing here is the sociological And understand that, like I just illustrated, I would have been the schlep in the field, right? I wouldn't have been able to to have any relationship. But here, what the temple was actually doing 
was giving an opportunity for all people to have access to God. It was a, and, you, and even when we read further, even non-Jews, non-Israelites eventually would be able to have access, some access to God throughout this. So the temple was a very good thing for the populace at this time. And what we need to see about the temple is that in many ways, what the temple represents, it's a reflection on who God is himself. I'm going to run my triad back right here, right? Three things that we can see through this. The first thing is that the temple represented royalty. Royalty. Something kingly. We see this because, you know, in, in chapter 6 here, there's a description of how the temple was built. In chapter 7, we see how Solomon's palace was built. They were ornate structures. They were beautiful. They were worthy of kings. In 1 Kings chapter 6, further down here, verses 20 and 21, we see that Solomon overlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold. He overlaid everything with gold. He's the Scrooge McDuck of the ancient world. He is going medieval on this place to make sure that it is a, it is a house that is worthy of a king. And friends, it's something that needs to be said. No expense was spared because Solomon said, no, for my God, it's going to be this most valuable, just priceless structure. The, the best that I can present. And that is something that we see just here, the idea of royalty. Friends, God is king of the universe, and the temple reflects that. Let me go the second aspect of this, beauty. And this is very interesting for some of us Protestants. Like, if you have a Catholic background, basically beauty ends up being hardwired within your way of worship uh, of Christianity. For many of us Protestants, it's very plain. Even though we sit today in this, you know, again, ornate, old sanctuary that was built. Today, if, and again, my job puts me within the midst of church architecture. And when I walk into these church buildings right now, they are basically just drywalled buildings with like sound uh, mufflers on the back so that the sound doesn't just echo all throughout. And then there's usually a stage and the most expensive thing in there is the lighting, the audio, and the visual, right? Because all the attention is, is like, we can shut this thing off and it can be a Denny's tomorrow morning. I don't, I, you know, like it, it's very simplistic for those of us who are Protestants. Sometimes we don't have an appreciation of what beauty is within worship. And this is something that we see within the temple. It was a gorgeous structure God carried about aesthetic. And this basically is tied to what David sang about in the Psalms, Solomon's father, where we worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. Father, we, uh, friends, we can have an appreciation of the father because of who God is and all that he's created. We can appreciate the aesthetic of it. Something interesting about the temple in verse 2. I know I'm jumping back and forth, but just track with me. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 wide, and 30 high. I'm working fractions with the daughter right now as she's doing her math prep. Understand that that's a symmetrical structure. Okay, so that it is organized and built. And this is something about the aesthetics of it. Is number one, we understand the beauty of God. And number two, what symmetry brings is order. I know some of you like to go to the art museum and see your Picassos. I think there's a whole, no, is Picasso? Is that the exhibit that's coming in? No, or is it, um, it's the other guy who paint, Van Gogh. I think Van Goghs are coming in. Somebody's coming in. Da Vinci. Is that who's coming in? Way off. 
Anybody know anything about art? No, okay. But here's the aspect of it. As much as we appreciate abstract art, understand that much of the art that got us to the modern era, and one of the reasons that abstract art becomes so popular is because we now have the means to do, you know, it's like we have achieved the apex of symmetry. But when you go and look at art throughout the Renaissance period, there's this value in what symmetry means in the realm of beauty. And what it does is it depicts order. And this is something that the temple reflects about God, which is important. Our God is a God in order. And sometimes we have a way of looking at it from the negative perspective, right? Like I read through the Bible, there's just so much, there's like rules, regulations. You're like, man, God just, he's pissed all the time. It's like he hates humans. He gives us all these laws. But friends, more important that God tries to distinguish, distinguish order then we lived in a world of full chaos. Like, it's funny, anarchists love, you know, everybody loves, you know, just freedom and rebellion until it messes with your life and your stuff, right? Like, oh, I love it when people are just going crazy and having fun, but once you hit my house and my belongings, then I get ticked. And that's because we appreciate order. Our world, as much as we want to say some, you know, just to use maybe the term that it evolved, friends, I, I, even within an evolutionary, evolutionary aspect, even within that aspect, God, God implanted order into the world. It's a reflection of who he is, and that temple showed that. Last thing that I find interesting about the temple is this concept of solemnity. This is your no running in the church aspect of it, Right? which is really what my dad was trying to get to me as a lesson. But coming back to this, which is something that's very obscure, if you'll look down uh, in verse 7 of chapter 6 right here, it's very fascinating about the temple because if you read in chapter 5, there were these stone cutters, and some of the stones that exist in the western wall right now were massive. They were as long as this pew and they, you know, they, they weighed tons upon tons. And we know this in the construction of the pyramids or whoever made Stonehenge is that the ancients figured out great ways to make buildings. But this is the most interesting thing. We know there were thousands and thousands of people who worked in the temple. But when it got to the job site, everything changed. At the job site, completely different. My family has a construction background. You go to a job site, actually it's where I learned to curse really properly, was working construction sites growing up, okay? The thing about it is that construction sites are loud, right? They, they are boisterous places. And what we see in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, that in the building of the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. Friends, they put the construction on mute, it was silent. And that's just ridiculous for a job site. You know, could you imagine, like, because especially job sites, people, the reason it's, you learn to curse is people are already always ticked at each other. You have contractors doing different things and everybody's angry about everybody. And the next thing you know, can you imagine getting to this temple site? It was like, we have to move the block over here. It's very important that you don't crush that man to death. Sounds ridiculous, but I think this is an aspect to just understand about God. This is the thing that sometimes then we Protestants, again, forget about God. And I would say that our Catholic brothers and sisters have a better idea of the idea that God's, his splendor is so great that we need to approach him with reverence. Right? So, when I see the kids running around the church, I don't try to go crazy about that. 
as long as we're not like, you know, doing somersaults off pews or anything. But it's this idea that, friends, the reason that we have this respect is that God is peace. And the solemnity of who he is speaks to this. So they're building this temple and finally they wrap it up. First Kings chapter 6 verse 38. In the 11th year, in the month of Bull, the 8th month, the temple was finished in all its detail according to its specifications. And Solomon had spent 7 years building it. The word finished here is very specific in the Hebrew. It was used before in the Bible. Actually, it was used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, that the heavens and the earth were completed or finished in all their vast array. The author of this text wanted to say, by the way, the completing of the temple, it was like what God did when he finished creating, right? Like, God works for six days, seven days, he's just like, time off. And then at the end, he's like, booyah, it's done, it's perfect. And similarly, that's what the writer of First Kings is trying to say about the temple. It's perfect. Even to the point that it, it said that it took seven years to build. And if you know anything about biblical numbers, seven is the number of perfection biblically. So there's this aspect that all of this was done as best as could be imagined. Not just from human perspective, but from God's perspective. So we have this temple. Everything's great. You know, it's a beautiful existence, right? Not at all. It's not in a good existence at all, is it? Because actually, if you look at that temple mount today, for since its existence, that little piece of real estate is some of the most contest, contested real estate in all of the earth. Even still today. There's a problem with sacred space. And there's a scholar who um, is an Old Testament scholar. His name's Walter Brueggemann. And he's a prolific writer. And he just happened to move to Cincinnati. So I'll see Walter Brueggemann around town here and there. Um, I've heard him lecture before. The guy's brilliant. He understands everything within the Old Testament. Um, We should really stalk him because I am a fanboy. Like there was one time Kelly and I saw him out of show. I was like, there's Brueggemann. I really need to go talk to him. Like it's date night. We don't go up and talk to biblical scholars on date night. Rules. Solemnity. Okay. This is something that Brueggemann writes about this. Religious passion, when institutionally expressed, is essential for community, but is at the same time deeply open to distortion. I'll try it one more time because this is where we feel smarter for having gone to church today. Religious passion, when institutionally expressed, is essential for a community, but is at the same time deeply open to distortion. I meet people all the time when they find out I'm an ordained minister, say, well, I hate organized religion. And the reason that they hate organized religion is is because they've seen the distorted aspects of it where it's gone awry and therefore they want to toss the baby out with the bathwater. But here's the thing about even this temple that Bergman observes. He says, as much as this was a perfect temple, right? It was completed just like God created creation. It was done in seven years. There's that number just, just coming out of this. It's like it was the perfect thing. When in reality, when we look at it, it was not perfect. Interestingly enough, one of the tension uh, aspects of the temple is that really, when we look at the architecture of it, it emulated the pagan temples of the land. 
And we know this architecturally because we have the blueprints, right? We don't have the temple. But as they've started to excavate other temples that were made by pagans in the time, they're like, you know what? These dimensions look kind of familiar. Oh, yeah, it's the same ones from 1 Kings chapter 6, 7, 8. So it was like Solomon said, I'm going to build the best pagan temple ever, and then I'm going to give it to God. And by the way, there were not that many craftsmen in Israel, so the people who were actually responsible for building this, if you go back to chapter 5, were all pagans too. So it's not like the people of God, you know, it's like, hey, let's go build a church for a God. They're like, what are we, you know, they're on the job site. They're like, what are we building? You're like, I don't know, like some building, some temple for their God, and we'll go back to our God's friends. It was a point of tension because there was distortion here. So as we look at all of this, it comes back to this. How do we view sacred space? Right? How do we view in here? One of the reasons that I met with the CELC this week is that uh, we're getting people who want weddings in here. Like, uh, we're, we're trying to figure out a plan to make that happen just because people want to have a wedding in here. And just think about this. Like, if they do this, we're going to charge them rent. And they're going to come in a place where they probably have no emotional connection. Why? Why are they doing that? Because even for people who are, don't even have a connection with God, someplace like this, it speaks to a sacredness that we don't find in regular life. In short, they don't build them like this no more, right? And people have this desire. There's an aspect of all of this that happens, and if you can skip forward to chapter 8 of First Kings, because this is where they dedicate the temple, the following event occurs in verses 10 through 11. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple." So despite it was perfect, even though it really wasn't perfect because it was built by pagans in a pagan way, God basically came in and he looked at the digs. He's like, I can work with this. And he shows up in a cloud, you know, smoke. We're we're going to assume that because there must have been something of significance right here. Because if you've been in any sort of religious worship, sometimes some sort of incense or cloud is, you know, cloud, some sort of smoke is used so that the difference between the cloud and the smoke smoke is something here of significance. And I think the significance is, is that God came in, he says, it doesn't matter because anything that you create, you humans, is not going to measure up to what I've made, right? He's like, oh, that's a pretty impressive temple that you have here. Look at Everest. It does not correlate. And the lesson for us, I think, is this. Structures aren't holy. They only become sacred when God inhabits them. Structures aren't holy. They only become sacred when God inhabits them. When we first started this church 10 years ago, we had this building issue. We we met just down the street at a little church off to the left. It was, it, you know, it was different than this building, but it was just as gorgeous. Stained glass windows was, were newer, and they, they were immaculate. By the way, on my Flickr, I've got a Flickr site where I took a picture of all the stained glass, and you can just see. It, it was a beautiful, beautiful building. And we got into a bidding war, which wasn't really a bidding war, with the church that was closing down because we put in like a very just low ball offer and they chose the offer that was seven times what we 
ended up uh, paying for it. Did it die on me? It's searching. I'm searching. Um, and the guy who bought it, actually, you can go down the street, you can check it out. He's actually making it into, he, he and one companion live in that building. Like it's now a mansion, just down here on the left, right? And there was this aspect that I really struggle with because I'm like, oh, it's really great that a church is now becoming somebody's house. But the realities are to try to look at this in a broad level. It's, it's not about, friends, it's not about the building itself. It's about what God does with it. Do me a favor. There's a text in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If somebody can blue Bible that for me as well and find a page number. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You can let it go. 809. Verses 19 and 20. Because the continuation of this thought is, you know, then if sacred space only happens when God inhabits it, then what do we do? Like, you know, we didn't have a good dedication service right here where we got all the people together and we said prayers over everything and all this stuff. We basically just got to work and cleaned up the mess, right? Like, what, where does it end? First Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20. What we see is that through Jesus, the, uh, the concept of sacred space has changed. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So it's this weird cosmic transition, right? When Jesus died and was the perfect temple sacrifice, and by the way, he died within the shadow of the temple in Jerusalem, right? He was right there. He was buried on the other side of the shadow of, of, of the temple in Jerusalem. He was right there when it happened. When he lived life perfectly, he became the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And in his death and in resurrection, everything changed. And one of the things that changed about this, the idea of sacred space was completely transformed. Because for the longest time in the ancient world, this was a very, very new concept. So whenever we read this stuff, if, you, if you're very fluent in churches, if you've been in Christian you know, settings your whole life, you're like, oh, okay, okay, I get it. The Holy Spirit lives with me. It lives within me, right? Like, that's what God does. It's God is the Holy Spirit. That's the other triad, right? Holy Spirit lives in me. That's great. Do you recognize, though, the transition? for the ancients who are thinking about that. For the longest time, they saw God dwelling in structures. We build a building, God moves in, that's how things work. What Paul says is, no, 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 no. Now in this new world where Jesus was the fulfillment of temple worship, now he lives inside of you, right? So my body serves as a temple, that cloud filling up should be more than cigarette smoke, or if you smoke pot, don't. But, you know, if that smoke that is in you is not the same smoke. It's not that concept of the Spirit. It is the idea that the Spirit of God lives inside of you. So that as I move and act, I am a miniature temple. Really shoddy construction with too much Diet Coke. However, I'm the temple of the living God. And that changes the concept of sacred space, doesn't it? Because instead of viewing it with buildings, where's the sacred space? The sacred space 
is here. And you're like, wait, 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 Steve, because this is what I'm really good at preaching. Because last week, you know, I even talked about this, right? What was the lesson of Solomon? Solomon was the wisest man in the world. He knew the ways of the Lord, yet he always did the opposite. He sucked. And I said this about you, and I said this about me. I was like, we suck, right? We are not good at this. So you're like, so how does God do that? How does holy God just say, okay, I'm going to deal with Steve even though he is the worst person in the world? How am I going to live in that? Because that's the secret of what God does, right? He moves into a place, he sets up shop, and he changes it. And this idea that we are the temple now, we are the sacred space, is that God says, I will move into whatever space and I will make that place holy. That's the beauty of our faith, friends. That even in our imperfections, even in our flaws, even when we don't measure up, when we follow Jesus, we're sacred space. We're sacred space. And that should transform our concept of that, right? So this is the thing. Anywhere you go is worship. Any interaction you have is worship. I'm glad that you came here this morning. This is what we do as the people. We gather together. But recognize when we say amen after the last thing and send you out there, it's not like that spiritual experience ends. It goes with you to lunch. It goes with you to work. It goes to you within your relations with your colleagues and with your family. Everywhere you go, it's church time, right? Because the Spirit lives inside of you. Everything becomes worship. And that's what we need to take with us, is that that's what... Jesus did for us. And that's why as we conclude our worship together, it comes to this time of communion. It comes to this time where we, in an in a experiential way, try to remember this moment that transformed everything. We remember the cross as we consume. It's something that bodies of believers have been doing for 2,000 years, and we do it even now today. So I'm going to say a prayer And then we're going to pass around these trays. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to take a piece of bread and a cup. Eat and drink. And use this moment to remember the cross. Which made everything holy. Which made us holy. Even though we're not. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, boy I was excited to preach about the temple today. Because that's a relevant topic. But I was... Not just because I'm a nerd, because I love the idea, Father, that we can see where worship of you, you continued to release it. And you brought it into order and symmetry, and now you brought it to our very lives. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for dwelling in sacred spaces in the past, and thank you for dwelling inside of us. Help us not to... Just, just not to take for, that for granted in our lives. And we realize that, that happened because of the cross. And as we follow in the pattern of, as Christians have done for thousands of years, as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, as we commune together, Father, we just remember the cross, a horrible experience that gave the opportunity for the Spirit of God to live in us. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.